Good morning, Rocky Peak. Are you ready for tomorrow? Man, this is it. The last day of the year, the last Sunday of the year, the last service of the year. Uh, so excited to be in this time with you. Our family's been back from our big adventure in Canada now. This is our third Christmas back. And can I just tell you how amazing it is and how overrated a white Christmas is? <laughs> Let me tell you. Like, I'll stand in sunshine. I don't have to shovel all day. It's been gorgeous. One of the things that's been fun coming back, especially coming back to Rocky Peak, is reconnecting with some old friends, people that we knew like 10 years ago when we had left, making some new friends along the way, but just seeing what God has done in different people's stories. And so one couple, some really good friends that we had before we had left, it's just been amazing to see how God has so blessed them in those nine, 10 years that we were away. And then to see how they have been faithful to that blessing God has given them, just being incredibly generous and sharing their home and sharing what God is doing in their story. And so this year, they threw a Christmas party for, for a group of us that was just a blessing to go and be a part of, had this amazing meal together. And then as we were gathered together in their home, we did the white elephant gift exchange. That is so fun to do at Christmas time. So like, most of you know what that is. Like, if you don't know what that is, you can ask someone after and they'll hopefully explain it correctly. But, but it was time for us to all sit down. And so here's the important thing when you start doing the white elephant gift exchange. Clearly establish the rules of the game. Because a white elephant gift exchange, which is meant to bring us together, can tear friendships apart, right? If you've not done this well. And so those rules were, were laid out and established. And so then my number was somewhere kind of in the middle of the thing. And, and early on, I saw our gracious hostess open this amazing gift. And in my mind, I'm like, oh, wow, look at that. And I don't think anyone here knows the value of what she just opened. And so when it was my time, I'm keeping track of steals and, you know, you're playing all the games, you're doing the math and you're like, if I take this, they might take that, which open, you know, like, like, like if you've ever done that. So I'm like, okay, there's no, no one sees the interest in this. And so I exercised my right and I stole this from her hands. Look at this. Look at this amazing piece of art. This is a Santiago, a one of one. Our friend Rebecca Santiago painted it at a paint night and brought it as her gift. Right? So I had her sign it for me. I'm like, could you please sign this? Because I don't know if anyone there recognized the value of what this was, but I did. Because I realized what this represented for me and my family. Because 10 years ago, God called us on this amazing adventure and we gave him our yes and it required sacrifice. It required letting go. It required saying goodbye to friends and family as we said yes on this amazing adventure and journey. And then it wasn't lost on me that here I am. Like God's like, Joel, I'm going to boomerang your life. Just watch what I'm going to do. I'm going to send you out with some frostbite and adventures. <laughs> but there will come a day where you get to come home changed because you gave me your yes. And as I saw this picture, I was like, I want this picture to remind me of a God who restores the things we lay at his feet, of a God who gives us good things. Because I don't know about you, but I tend to be fickle when it comes to my faith. Like it doesn't take very long for me to forget that God is good and God's at work in my story. And so I knew I wanted to take this amazing fox and cup of wine. I don't, I'm not really sure what it is, but... I knew I just wanted to, to just have as I go into the new year to remind me of what God can do. How many of you need to be reminded of what God can do in your story? And so as we roll into this last day of the year, as we roll into the new year, we're going to spend some time unpacking this series that we're calling Greater Things. And the big idea of this series is that God is not done with the story. And there is more to see and more to experience as we come into the coming year. And so as we head into this time, we're going to unpack this together. So let's just pause and pray. Let's invite Jesus to come and do what only he can do to awaken us to the truth that sets us free. And so Lord, we come into this presence, we come into your presence, aware that, that this is a, an interesting time of year for so many of us. For some, there's beautiful things on the horizon. There's, there's great expectations of what's, what's to come. It's, it's a year filled with the expectation of hope and, 
So could we step into 2024 with that hope, but a hope that isn't just in those things, it's a hope that looks beyond them to you. And yet, Lord, I know that for some of us coming into this time, this is always a challenging, painful reality. And, and there's hurt in our story that's just brought up is in the season. And, and so maybe we're looking at the coming year and there's not much expectation. We're just wondering, is this just going to be another one of those years that has just been challenging? And so what I would ask that, if that's where we're at today, would you come and whisper deep into our souls that you're not done? that there is a God who is on the move and you have something for us. Now, wherever it is that we find ourselves today, we're in, we're curious, we're seeking, we're searching, our friend tricked us into coming, whatever it is. Will we just be open to the fact that we're not here by mistake, that you have something for us and you want to do something in our stories. And so give us ears to hear what you want to say, Lord, and hearts to receive that we, we may step into this year with expectation of who you are and what you are going to do. Amen. Amen. So as you think about the idea of stepping into the new year tomorrow, what do you believe about tomorrow? Like I think some of us, we're like the glass half full people, right? So it's just, it's really easy to be optimistic about tomorrow. And so we look at the coming year and, hey, no matter how 2023 went, I'm just hopeful about 2024. It's like it's a chance to do another lap around the sun. This is exciting. And yet, how do we anchor that hope into something that's more than just wishful thinking? And yet, there are some of us when we're like the glass half empty people, right? And so we look at this and we're just like, here it goes. Just another year to get beaten down again or whatever it might be. Like there's just a, there's just a negation in our view of how life goes. And, and so how do we let God meet us in our pessimism and cynicism and lift our eyes beyond that to a hope that is truly grounded in something we can rest our lives in? And so this is what we're going to be chasing today as we go into that. And we're going to look at something that Paul writes. We just looked at it earlier in our time together in Ephesians chapter 3 that can give us this perspective of hope that God is at work in our stories. And it's a hope that's greater than just blind optimism. And it's a hope that's just so much stronger than the pessimism that many of us get trapped in. And so we're going to spend some time unpacking what Paul writes here in Ephesians 3, 14. And so in your message notes, the passage is actually there to help you follow along. But if you have your Bibles or if you want to follow along on your phone, not Facebook, but your Bible app, you can do that. <laughs> but I love what Paul writes here in verse 14 of chapter 3. He says, for this reason, I kneel before the Father. And so because we're jumping into the middle of his letter, we don't really know what Paul has said yet to cause him to say these words for this reason. So let's just unpack a little bit of what he's talking about. Paul, what's the reason that's causing you to come before God and just fall on your knees? And you'll see he repeats that phrase earlier at the start of chapter three. For this reason, he says. And so what's the reason? Well, it's everything he's written up to this point. So if you read through the, the letter of Ephesians, you see these amazing things that Paul's laying out. And then we come to chapter two, and chapter two starts with some heavy news. He says, hey, apart from Christ, you and I, we were dead in our transgressions. I don't know about you, but that's a bad day. Like, dead is never good. And he's not just simply saying, like, hey, you're struggling to figure it out. Like, Jesus can be one of your gurus. He's like, no, you were dead. You had no chance of figuring this out. But because of God's mercy... He has made us alive with Christ, even though we were dead. And he says these beautiful words, it is by grace you have been saved, and this is not of yourselves, it's the gift of God. That there's this hope that we have in our story that God has moved on our behalf. He sent his son into the world to rescue us, redeem us, restore us. And we step into that new life, not on our merit, but on God's grace. And we walk in faith, and as we do that, we're brought into new life. And then Paul will continue to unpack in chapter two this beautiful hope that all people are being called into this new family that God is creating, that through one group of people, the Jews, he was gonna bring his rescuer, his redeemer, because through this one Messiah, he was gonna rescue all people. So now all are invited to join the family of God, Jew, Gentile, it doesn't matter where you're coming from. In Jesus, you're called into a new family and God becomes father. And then he wraps up chapter two with this beautiful picture that God is building us as followers of Jesus to be his temple because he's putting his spirit in us. 
which is incredible to realize you don't have to go to the temple in Jerusalem. You don't have to go to some sacred site. Wherever you go, if God has put his spirit in you, you are with him. And so God is with you at the beach. God is with you in the office. God is with you in the traffic on the 405. God is with us. That's the hope of Christmas. And so because of all these things, Paul is fired up as we hit what he's saying here in chapter three. And so he says, for this reason, I kneel before the Father, from whom every family in heaven and on earth derives its name. And I pray that out of his glorious riches, he may strengthen you with power through his spirit in your inner being so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. And I love the hope of these words because who does the strengthening in the story? He does. Do you know how much hope that gives me? Because I don't know, I'm the guy that signs up for the gym in January and then goes in October to cancel the membership, right? Like, and that, that's like, like my, faith, my spiritual journey can feel like that. Like, I just got to muscle up. I just got to be strong in my faith. And like, here we go. And then like life happens and I crumble fast. And I'm like, what hope do I have? And God's like, all the hope because it's my strength, not yours. I will strengthen you. I will put my spirit in you. I will empower you. I will transform you from the inside out. When you think you can't step up because I can, when you think you can't forgive, when you think you can't love, when you think you can't face the challenge, I will strengthen you because it's my spirit in you. It's through faith. Keep going. So Paul is so excited. He still goes on. He goes, and I pray that you, being rooted and established in love, may have power together with all the Lord's holy people to grasp how wide and long and high and deep is the love of Christ. And I love this because if you've ever experienced love in your life or in your story, you know it's an amazing thing, right? I mean, like we've been writing love songs about love songs for generations, And what Paul's saying is, hey, I want you to know real love. I want you to know the love of Christ. This is a love that is transformational. This is a love that will change your story forever. Like, you remember what Jesus told us about love and what he wanted from us when it comes to love? Like, he he says this in John 13. John records this account because he was hanging out with Jesus that night. This is their last meal with him, and Jesus is about to go to the cross, and And John says that Jesus showed his followers the full extent of his love, and he's not talking about the cross. He's talking about what he does at the meal, where he goes and he washes all of their feet. He takes the low place, the place of a servant, to show how valuable they are. And it's this beautiful moment. And then after that moment, Jesus says to them, so hey, here's a new command I give you. Love each other as I have loved you, so you are to love one another. And this is the love that Paul's wanting us to know and experience, this love that Christ has for us, because this is good news for us. The love that we are created for is the love God has. And here's good news. His love is strong, and we need a strong love like that in our world and in our story. Because have you realized this about your love? Because this is true of my love. Our love is weak. And it's weak in a couple of ways. One of the ways that our love is weak is that our love tends to be very conditional. Like, I'll I'll tell you what, if I like you, ooh, I will love you. If I enjoy the dynamic between us, it is so easy to love you, but cross me, cut me off in traffic, whatever it is, man, my love is out the window and you're getting another version of me. My daughters have experienced the conditional nature of my love. They have. I I strive to be a good dad, but I need help from my father in heaven because it's so easy just to lose it at times. See, our love is weak. God's love is strong. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. That's how God demonstrated his love. When we were at our worst, God's like, you're a mess. You're done. I love you. Now let me lead you into life. But here's another reason why our love tends to be weak. Our love tends to be permissive. Our love tends to to look at another person in the brokenness of their story and to say, that's okay. Like that's what our culture demands love to look like. Our culture teaches us that love is to look at me as I am in whatever mess I am. And if I call that my identity, affirm that. But yeah, that's not love. 
That's brokenness because we live in a broken, messed up world and we're all broken in one way or another and it's like we're all playing in the muck and mire of life and then we grab the mud and we rub it on our face and we say, this is who I am, I demand that you affirm me. It's not affirming to, to say that because love, love speaks truth. Love says, no, you're not a child of muck and mire, you're a child of light and truth and if you wanna know who you are, come home to the Father. But see, our love, the, world, the world's love is way too permissive. God's love is strong because God calls out what is wrong and then says, and I will deal with that for you and make a way home. And so I love that Paul's like, I want you to know this love because you want to know what love is? Find Jesus, let him find you. That's true love. And so he goes on and he says, to know this love that surpasses knowledge that you may be Filled to the measure of all the fullness of God. Like what does God's love do when we encounter it? It reminds us who we were meant to be. Like God created us in his image so that we could know him and walk with him. Our greatest joy and delight in life would be to belong to him and reflect the reality of him to the world around us. And when we step into new life with Jesus, he puts the spirit of God in us to begin to awaken us so that we can experience the fullness of God in our stories to be brought back into the life that we were created for. Which explains why we are church together. We are church together to remind us of who we are meant to be and who God is helping us become. To remind us that the old identity doesn't define who we are. The mess and the brokenness doesn't own us. We've been set free and God is doing a new work in our story. I need you to remind me of that. And you need the people around you to remind you of that. And that's what church is. It's a group of messed up people walking in the hope of new life, chasing Jesus together. Which is why it's always interesting to me when someone says, I find church kind of boring. <laughs> I'm like, well, how are you defining church? What do you think church is? What, what, what's going on? Like, help me understand what you're saying. And, and, it, and as, as I process that idea of church being boring, I, a couple of thoughts have come to mind. I, I think the reason why someone might have an experience of boredom in the church is one of two reasons. The first reason is that you might be a part of a lame church. Like, you know, just like, and by that, I don't mean like, I didn't like the song. I mean like lame, like literally lame. Like there's no power. There's no ability for movement. There's no work of God in that church. And churches tend to become lame when they go to one of two extremes. One extreme is when they lose the power of God at work in their life because they think they have to do it. And so they embrace rules and ritual and legalism and force a community to externally conform without any power of transformation. And that becomes ugly. And that's a lame church. But a church also becomes lame when it goes to the opposite extreme and it rejects the power of the truth that Jesus said would set us free and it capitulates to the values of the culture and in the name of love, it just says it's all good, but that church experiences no transformative power in it and it also becomes lame. And so a church that is experiencing the power of God is not a perfect church. It's an imperfect group of people who are saying, we need help. His name is Jesus. Let's chase him together and we will listen and follow and let him change our story. And so if you're a part of a church like that or that's striving to be like that, and yet you would still say, yeah, but I find it boring. Might I suggest there's another issue going on? <laughs> Perhaps it's not the church that is lame. Perhaps you are lame at being church. Because for some of us, all church is is a show up, sit down experience. And let me tell you, you're never going to experience the power of God in your life if all you do is tune in online occasionally or you show up once or twice a year and hope that it feels good. Because what church is meant to be is a group of people walking together, chasing after the life God has given us, transforming us from the inside out so that we could know what God is up to and what God has for us. And so this is why Paul's like, I want you to know this love because it will change your life forever just as it's changed mine. And then as we begin to experience that and walk in that, Paul goes on and says these amazing words in verse 20. He says, now to him who is able to do immeasurably more than all we ask or imagine according to his power that is at work within us. 
To him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations forever and ever. Amen. I love the power of those words. Because when he says these words in the original language that he would have written it, now to him who is able to do, he, he's playing with this word in the, in the language of his day that has made its way into modern vernacular. It's our word dynamite. So when God is able to do, like God has explosive power that he can bring into the equation. And he goes, but it's not just like a, a sparkler on the 4th of July. He's, in, it's, he's able to do this immeasurably more than all we ask or imagine, which is where from that Greek word we get our word hyper. And so it's like the power of God at work in your life is like some hyper dynamite going off, exploding in you, awakening you. It's the kind of power that moves mountains as we walk with him into our future. And this is what he's saying. God is able to do this immeasurably more than all we ask or imagine. According to what? What does he say? According to our power? Like, it's like somehow I have to muster it up and figure out how to light the fuse? No, it's not according to our power, your power. Well, is it according to my positive vibes? and my ability to manifest my future? No. Is it even according to our faith? Do you remember what Jesus said, how much faith it would take to move a mountain? <laughs> not a whole lot, right? He said what? A mustard seed. Because it's not faith in me, it's faith in the one who has the power. So it doesn't take very much faith to access the power of a God who wants to work in your story. It's just, okay, I'm kind of freaking out. I don't know how it works, but I trust you, so let's go. And you see God move in your story. So it's, According to what? It's according to his power at work where? In us. So as we look into this coming year, it's like, God, wait, you're at work in my life? You, you want to do something new in my story? You want to transform me? Like, like, I'm asking for the picket fence, and you're asking to transform me into a son or daughter of the kingdom who would rule and reign in your name. Okay, you can have the fence. I want that. I want your power unleashed in my life. And we begin to see what God is up to. And so my question is, Paul, why do you say all this? Like, are, are you just being a hype man? Are you just like the cool celebrity pastor who's just trying to get likes on it? It's like, why, why are you saying this, Paul? And I think Paul is saying this because of what he experienced when he encountered Jesus in his own story. Because if you know anything about Paul and, and his life, you, we, just, we meet Paul in the book of Acts. Acts is the story of the first Christians after Jesus went back to heaven and he, the Holy Spirit came upon them. And, and so when we meet Paul in the book of Acts, he is not a friend of Christianity. He's an enemy of it. He's trying to stomp it out. He's on a road to go and arrest Christians. And on the road, Jesus shows up and says, yo. Paraphrase. <laughs> Paul, why are you persecuting me? That's a bad moment. Like sometimes we think, hey, Jesus, showing up my story would be awesome. For Paul, this is like, oh no, I'm on the wrong side. I've been wrong about it. I'm done. And then Jesus has this incredible ability of taking his enemies and making them his children. <laughs> and so he invites Paul to join him. And Paul's life is transformed forever because he's experienced the power of the resurrected Jesus changing him. And so he writes these words, so to him who is able to do immeasurably more than all we ask or imagine according to his power, that is at work within us. To him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations forever and ever, amen. Because he's experienced something incredible. And so as we look at these words and we look at what God is up to in the hope that God has greater things ahead for us, do you believe what Paul's writing? Do you believe this? Maybe another way to chase after it is what does your life reveal about whether or not you believe this? Because I don't know about you, but my life has an interesting way of showing me the things that I actually believe or don't believe. And so as we chase this idea, as we get into this today, I, I want to ask you two questions to help you just measure in your own story today how much you actually believe that God can do more in your story. And so this is just, these are free for showing up today. It's not in your notes. But two questions that will help us just kind of measure wherever we're at and this idea, God, are there greater things? Do I truly believe that you've got more for me? And so here's the first question. What are you holding on to in the good times? Because God is a good father and he delights in giving us good things. 
Like you see that all throughout the scriptures in the New Testament. One of my favorite places where you see that is Paul writing to his protege, Timothy, on how to lead a church. He's like giving mentoring advice to this young pastor. And in his letter in 1 Timothy chapter 6, Paul says some incredible things. That's where Paul says those words that our culture has misunderstood, where he says money is the root of all evil. Except he doesn't say that, right? What does he say? The love of money is the root of all evil. Money is just a thing. It's our, our, our bad relationship with it. But then he'll go on at the end of chapter six and he'll say, Timothy, hey, tell those who are rich in this world, they are bad people. That's not what he says. He says, tell those who are rich in this world to be rich in good deeds, to enjoy the things that God has given them, but to use them to not be taken with the things, but to use them to be generous and help others so that they can take hold of the life that is really life. And the idea is not that wealth is the problem. The idea is that we don't always use wealth the way God intended to entrust it to us. But God wants to give us good things. But so often what we happen in the good times, what we hold on to is that we begin to hold on to the good things and make them God in our life. Instead of thanking God for those things pursuing stuff, like so often in my life, I'm like, why am I not content? Why do I need the next thing to make me happy? Like, what's going on? Maybe I've missed the point of what God is doing. And see, our hope is not in the giver in those moments. Our hope, are, our hope is in what the giver gives us. And here's how you know you might be wrestling with the belief that God has greater things in store for you. When he comes and talks to you about the good things he's given you, and he asks you to be generous and to use them for his kingdom come, and if your response is Gollum, <laughs> You might be wrestling in this issue, right? You're like, no, but God, it's my precious, right? And he's like, what? No, come on, let it go. Like, I gave this to you. See, because when we truly believe that God is able to do immeasurably more than all we ask or imagine, we hold loosely to the gifts and we hold tightly to the giver. Because true blessing is not in the things God gives us. True blessing is in belonging to him. And so when we understand this, we realize that we're not gonna mistake the good things today for the greater things that are still to come. Because today's good things are like the appetizers for what God still has in store for us because greater things are still to come. But then here's the other question to wrestle with. It's the opposite side of the first. What are you holding on to in the bad times? Like, is it just me or do you find it somewhat amazing how quickly you can lose your mind when it hits the fan? Like, am I the only one? Okay, three of us, four. Like, like, isn't it amazing? Like, it can be like, God, you're awesome, you're awesome. And then what? And my life spins and spirals. And like, what happened, Joel? You were just declaring God's praises on, on, on Sunday and now it's Wednesday and you're like crying foul. Like, how easy is that, that I do this to them? And here's what's crazy to me is like, like, what did we just celebrate last weekend? Christmas. Like the celebration of God fulfilling his promise of rescue through his son. And guess what we're going to celebrate in the spring of new, the next year? Easter. Jesus showing up and overcoming sin and death and giving us new life because he defeated the grave. You know, from, from the cosmic struggle, you know what, you know what Christmas is? D-Day. Jesus showing up in occupied territory and saying, let's do this. You know what Easter is? V-Day. Our victory, our life, our hope in Christ. But you know what's going to happen to me between Christmas and Easter? Someone or something is going to happen and I'm going to lose it. I'm going to forget. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna, I'm gonna to just like lose my mind. And see, my tendency in those moments is to hold on to my pain, hold on to my hurt, hold on to my frustration, and let go of my faith to let go of my hope and my trust in this God who's at work in my story. And yet when we truly believe that God is able to do immeasurably more than all we ask or imagine, we hold loosely to the pain and we hold tightly to our Savior. That's why Paul will write these words in 2 Corinthians 4. He says these words, he goes that our light and momentary troubles are achieving for us a glory that far outweighs them all. And Paul's not making light of the troubles. What Paul is saying is compared to the greater things that God has for us, compared to the glory that's coming, compared to what he has in store, that weight of that moment will make today's struggle feel light and momentary. 
And so we hold loosely to our pain and we hold tightly to our Savior because our hope is not determined by today's circumstance. It's determined by God's power at work in our story. And so when the darkness hits, we do not give up in the darkness what we held on to in the light because greater things are still to come. And so how do we prepare ourselves for that? And how do we posture ourselves to step into the new year with expectation, expectation that God is able to do immeasurably more than we could ask or imagine? And so that's what we're chasing in this series, that we're gonna be wrestling with this and walking with this over these weeks. How do we chase after this? Not with presumption that it's gonna go according to our plans. Newsflash, it ain't. but expectation that God is still at work. How do we walk forward? Not with naivete that it's all going to be great because it's not, but expectation that God is greater, come what may. Walking forward, not with denial that there won't be challenges ahead, but expectation that God will be in it with us. And so what do we do with that? And so as we come to the end of this year and we look ahead to 2024, Let's make sure we don't miss what God has done. And so as we look forward, let's pause and look back and remember what God has done so we can grab hold of that and take that with us into the new year. And so there's this story I wanna spend a little bit of time unpacking, walking, walking with you because there's this beautiful spiritual principle that stands out for us and this idea of getting ready for what's to come. And it takes place in the book of 1 Samuel. 1 Samuel chapter 5 is where we're going to jump in. This is one of the ancient stories of God working with his people in the, in the Old Testament. And what we're seeing in the story is that this is a time where God was working with his people through people called judges. So the kings hadn't come yet. This is before David's time. And the way God would work with his people is that he would raise up a champion who he would represent himself through that person and they were called to turn God's heart, turn people's heart back to God. And, and if you read through the book of Judges, that's a fun read <laughs> because Judges shows the generational fickleness of God's people. Like there's a generation that will follow him and then there's a generation that will turn away to dark things. It is a hot mess. And what's amazing is that God still works with them. <laughs> And so we're picking up the story here in Samuel chapter five. Samuel is the last of the judges. And it's a time in the people's history where they had turned away from God and they're experiencing what God said would happen when they do that. That God said, walk with me, it will be good. I will be your God, I will bless you. It's gonna go amazing. But walk, like turn away from me and turn back. I'll either bring my hand of discipline on you to wake you up or I'll just let you have what you want with the world and you'll see how the world is not a friend. And so this is the time that they're in. So their enemies are a group of Philistines that have come and they've captured the Ark of the Covenant. So if you don't know what that is, watch Raiders of the Lost Ark later today. (laughs) And that'll give you a good visual depiction of this. What God had done is he had told them to build this thing that would hold the covenant, the Ten Commandments, his promise between them. And then God would choose to presence himself over this ark in the sacred place. And it was how he would be with his people. And so they walked away from God and God's like, okay, good luck. And then the Philistines have swooped in and stolen the ark. And this is where we pick up the story here in chapter five, 1 Samuel. It says, after the Philistines had captured the ark of God, they took it from Ebenezer to Ashdod. And then they carried the ark into Dagon's temple and set it beside Dagon. Okay, so this is a Philistine flex going on right here. Like back in that day, the way you would show your superior and your power, if you could overtake another group or another kingdom, you would steal their gods and their trophies, and then you would set those up as decorations in your temples to show that your God was greater. So the Philistines are showing off in this moment, and that's just kind of how it worked, except it doesn't really go well when the God you're messing with is the God, and they're about to discover that. When the people of Ashdod rose early the next day, there was Dagon fallen on his face on the ground before the ark of the Lord. (laughs) God's like, who bows to who? And so they took Dagon and put him back in his place. That must have been a fluke. But the following morning when they rose, there was Dagon fallen on his face on the ground before the ark of the Lord. His head and hands had been broken off and were lying on the threshold. Only his body remained. This is like God's flex. I'm gonna cut your God's hands off so you know he has no agency. And by the way, I'm just gonna decapitate him so you know he's dead. So you wanna wanna play? Let's play. 
And so that is why to this day, the day that this was written, neither the priests of Dagon nor any others who entered Dagon's temple at Ashdod step on the threshold. They're like, God showed up here, don't step there. <laughs> and now let's get this, verse six. The Lord's hand was heavy on the people of Ashdod and its vicinity, and he brought devastation on them and afflicted them with tumors. And do not miss this. Yes, God is good. Yes, God is loving. And yes, God is holy, which means you don't mess with God. It's one, way, it's one thing to walk in just ignorance of what God desires, but it's another thing to actually walk in willful defiance to God and shove it in his face. And God's about to show the Philistines, I am God. You do not mess with me. And you need to know who I am. And if you wake up to me, it can be good. But if you continue down this path, it's not going to go well. And it's interesting, this word that he inflicted them with tumors. It's an interesting Hebrew word. It can be translated a lot of ways. But one possible translation is that by tumors, it means hemorrhoids. Which would be interesting because Dagon was the god of the harvest. And so what God is saying, if you want to keep finding sustenance in life from what he's feeding you, enjoy that. Some of you understand the, 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 the dark humor that is maybe going on here in this moment. So when the people of Ashdod saw what was happening, they said, the ark of the God of Israel must not stay with, here with us because his hand is heavy on us and on Dagon, our God. It's like, if you gotta like, protect your God, your God's not that cool. <laughs> and so they called together all the rulers of the Philistines and asked them, what shall we do with the ark of the God of Israel? And so they answered, have the ark of the God of Israel moved to Gath, which was another Philistine-occupied territory. So they moved the ark of the God of Israel. But after they had moved it, the Lord's hand was against that city, throwing it into great panic. He afflicted the people of the city, both young and old, with an outbreak of tumors. So they sent the ark of God to Ekron. It's like they're playing hot potato. You take it. I don't want it. You take it. And as the ark of God was entering Ekron, the people of Ekron cried out, they have brought the ark of the God of Israel around to kill us and our people. So they called together all the rulers of the Philistines and said, send the ark of the God of Israel away. Let it go back to its own place or it will kill us and our people. For death had filled the city with panic and God's hand was very heavy on it. And those who did not die were afflicted with tumors and the outcry of the city went up to heaven. And so then chapter six is just them trying to figure out what to do because they don't know God or his ways. And so they bring their pagan priests and they're like, what should we do? And they're like, well, you gotta send it back to the Israelites, but you can't send it back without some kind of a peace offering. So they make these little rat statues and these little statues of the tumors and they give them as a gift and they take, <laughs> yeah, go figure it. And so they take the ark and they strap it on a cart and they attach it to two cows. And they're like, Go. And the cows take the ark back to Israelite territory because God knows where his people are. And he's like, I want to come back to you. Will you receive me? And now we pick the story up in chapter seven. So the men of Kiriath-Jerim, which is some Israelites in that territory, came and took up the ark of the Lord. And they brought it to Abinab's house on the hill and consecrated Eliezer, his son, to guard the ark of the Lord. And the ark remained at Kiriath-Jerim a long time, 20 years in all. And the sons of the Bible just drops these really cool little like small notes and you're kind of like, I don't know what the point is, but I think it's just really cool like Eliezer got mentioned here. And like some of you, maybe if you're gonna have a kid in the new year and you're looking for a cool name, Eliezer might be that cool name. <laughs> and he could say, like, hey, why'd you name me Eliezer? And you're like, because he was God's bouncer in the Old Testament. And now God's going to use you to bring people in his presence in his house. I don't know. Just I'm fun with it. <laughs> but then look at what it says next. Then all the people of Israel turned back to the Lord. So now there's revival and restoration taking place. And so Samuel said to all the Israelites, if you are returning to the Lord with all your hearts, then rid yourselves of the foreign gods and the Ashtaroths and commit yourselves to the Lord and serve him only. And he will deliver you out of the hand of the Philistines. And so the Israelites put away their bowels and Ashtaroths. This is all the pagan stuff they had gotten worked into. And they served the Lord only. Then Samuel said, assemble all Israel at Mizpah and I will intercede with the Lord for you. And when they had assembled at Mizpah, they drew water and poured it out before the Lord. And on that day, they fasted and there they confessed, we have sinned against the Lord. 
and how Samuel was serving as leader of Israel at Mizpah. When the Philistines heard that Israel had assembled at Mizpah, the rulers of the Philistines came up to attack them. And this is interesting because this is like proof that you can't fix stupid. Because like they just forgot what happened 20 years ago. And they're like, oh, there they are. Let's go get them, right? And you're like, do you, do you, do you remember chapter six in the story, guys? But apparently not. And so when the Israelites heard of it, they were afraid because of the Philistines. And they said to Samuel, do not stop crying out to the Lord our God for us, that he may rescue us from the hand of the Philistines. And then Samuel took up a suckling lamb and sacrificed it as a whole burnt offering to the Lord. And he cried out to the Lord on Israel's behalf, and the Lord answered him. And don't miss the foreshadowing that there was a sacrifice to create rescue, which is this beautiful picture of what God will ultimately do through his son. And so while Samuel was sacrificing the burnt offering, the Philistines drew near to engage Israel in battle. But that day the Lord thundered with loud thunder against the Philistines and threw them into such a panic that they were routed before the Israelites. And the men of Israel rushed out of Mizpah and pursued the Philistines, slaughtering them along the way to a point below beth Car. Then Samuel took a stone and set it up between Mizpah and Shen, and he named it Ebenezer, saying, thus far the Lord has helped us. And so the Philistines were subdued, and they stopped invading Israel's territory. And throughout Samuel's lifetime, the hand of the Lord was against the Philistines. The towns from Ikron to Gath that the Philistines had captured from Israel were restored to Israel. And Israel delivered the neighboring territories from the hands of the Philistines, and there was peace between Israel and the Amorites. And let me, let me just ask a question. Like, like sometimes when I'm reading the stories, I try to imagine, like, what would that have been like to have lived or to have experienced? And so let's just imagine that we put ourselves there, and there's this, this moment where we turned our hearts back to God, and God was meeting us, and there's restoration, and then a threat was looming, and we cried out to God, and God dealt with the threat. For us, if we were in that story, you wake up the next day, what's the first thought on your mind? God saved us. Isn't this amazing? Look at what he's done. There's hope in my story. A week from now, what do you think they're saying as they wake up? God saved us. That was pretty cool. A month from now. Oh, that's right, God saved us. Six months from now. A year from now. How long did it take them before they forgot? It didn't take them very long. Because you get into the next couple of chapters and we get to the end of Samuel's life and the people come to Samuel and they say, we want to be like all the cool kids and have a king. And Samuel goes before God and his heart is broken and God's like, Samuel, they're not rejecting you. They're rejecting me. Which explains why Samuel set up that stone, that Ebenezer, because he knew they were, had the tendency to forget, and his hope was that this would remind them of what God had done in their story, that thus far God has saved us. How many of us here today have a sense and understanding of what God has done in our story? That God has shown up, that he has saved us, that he has rescued us. And so what's gonna happen tomorrow on the first of the year when you wake up? What's the first thought on your mind? Is it, God, you have saved me, you've done amazing things in my story, or is it something else? Like how long does it take you to forget what God has done in your story? It doesn't take me very long. And so maybe before that happens in our stories, we need to build an Ebenezer or two to remind us that thus far God has helped us as we walk into the coming year. And so here's one of mine, <laughs> right? I talked about this. You're like, that's an interesting Ebenezer. I know it is. <laughs> but I'm taking this with me in the 24 to remind me of what God has done in our family story. Because a short while ago, it was not like it is now. Like when we came back to California from Canada at the beginning of 2020, we went to help lead a church in the NorCal area and and that was just like the sense of God on the move and God leading us. And then we got there and seven weeks in, this thing called a global pandemic hit. I don't know if you experienced it down here, but we had to deal with it up there. And so that was challenging and hard because now we're trying to lead a church we don't know through a camera lens. And I don't know if you understand this, but some pastors, we go to school for stuff, but they didn't teach us how to lead in a pandemic. I miss that class. 
And so we're struggling to try and figure out what all this means, and it's hard, it's difficult. But then as we're there in our new context, I begin to have really weird conversations with the spiritual leaders of the church. And so one of the pastors that I inherited on my team made this really deep, profound comment once in a meeting and said, I don't think we need the Bible anymore. (laughs) And I'm like, come again? Like, I get it if that's somebody new who's exploring and they're on a journey of trying to figure it out. But if we're going to be in the center spiritual table of the church and we don't think we need the Bible, are we even Christian anymore? And then in another conversation later on, one of the, the spiritual elders of the church made this incredible comment in a meeting. He goes, I'm not saying truth doesn't exist. I'm just saying I don't think we can know what truth is. And I'm like, what? Like, not only is that philosophically absurd, do you understand the implications of what that means for us when it comes to following Jesus? Because Jesus said we would know the truth and the truth would set us free. And if you're saying we can't know the truth, then that means we can't follow Jesus. So we're just making it up as we go. And so the more we pressed in, the more it got challenging and confusing. And the more that we said, Jesus, what does it look like to be faithful to you? The more the context started to turn against us, which was confusing because it's like, I expect the world to not like who we are, but the church. And as we rolled into 2022, it got pretty intense. And it was interesting when we first got there, God just had put it on Christy's heart. Hey, two years. We didn't know what that meant. We just knew, okay, God, something will happen in two years. And as the two-year mark hit, it got ugly. And it's like, I know the church isn't perfect. I know the church hurts people. That's a part of the story. If you've had church church hurt in your story, I'm sorry, but... That's why Paul says to bear with one another and forgive one another, because we're going to hurt each other. That's just, we're growing up together, right? But it's one thing when the church actually begins to attack, and our family was the point of attack. My daughter's crying, not even wanting to go to church anymore, and I'm like, this, is, this isn't good. And so as Christy and I were praying and processing, she's like, why don't you reach out to Michael and just get some counsel? And so we've known Michael Yearly, our lead pastor here at Rocky Peak, for years. We, we served with him at a church in San Diego. And so Michael has been a spiritual mentor, a spiritual father, somebody that I've looked to. And so in March of 2022, I just sent a text, hey, can we talk? And Michael was so great. She's like, when? And so we got on this phone call with him, and it was like this two-hour long conversation. And he didn't tell me what I wanted to hear. He told me what I needed to hear. And I just remember the the point of the conversation was, Joel, maybe God has brought you to that church to help them decide what kind of church they want to be. And I got off that phone call and I was processing with Christy and I was just like, I don't think he's wrong, but I don't know what price it's going to cost us to help them figure that out. And so it just got more and more intense. So six, eight weeks later, it just became very clear that this was not a good place for us to be. There was not a response to leadership. Like, you're gonna, like we're going to either break something or be broken. And so this became my super deep, profound spiritual prayer. God, get us out. <laughs> and yet it was a, with a posture of open hands. And I remember very specifically on this one day, praying in the morning, walking around the campus that was empty and just praying like, God... I know you can turn things around. I've seen what you did in Canada. I've seen you do amazing things. And so if you want us here, we're yours. We will give ourselves to you. We'll be faithful to that. But in that surrender, my prayer is, please rescue us. And then I remember in that prayer being so clear with God. But you have to do it. I will not pursue anything. If you want us out of here, you have to make that happen. And then I said these words, and I am not even going to reach out to Michael. Because I know our relationship, I know our history, and that would just feel like me trying to solve it versus trusting you. So if there's anything for us on that end, you need to put it on his heart. And I prayed that in the morning, and then that afternoon I get this text from Michael. So here's the original reach out in March. Hey, any chance you're free for a call? That's him texting me, and I said, yes, I am. I like emojis. And he said, great, I will call. He likes them too. And I said, looking forward to connecting. And that was that first phone call that was just wise counsel and a trusted pastor. And then on that day, I prayed that morning, God, if you have anything for us, you need to put it on his heart. And that afternoon, he says, hey, just checking in. Are you still alive up there? And I just remember I showed that text to Christine. I'm like, I don't know what this means, 
I don't know where this is going, but God sees us. And so then my response was, hey! (laughs) You don't always get the tone of a text. (laughs) We are, and we are in the thick of it. I'd love to catch up and let you know what's going on. Thank you. That's not high five, that's pray. (laughs) And so we had a second phone call that led to another conversation, that led to another conversation, that led to God rescuing us from that context and bringing us home with you. And I saved this screenshots because this is an Ebenezer in my life. Because I don't know what's coming in 2024. Uh, There's nothing promised, but what I know is that God is good. And so if things get crazy and I don't understand what's going on, I look back on this and I'm like, but God, look what you did. So I can't wait to see what you have again. I can't wait to see what you're up to. I can't wait to see the things that you have. And see, Ebenezer's in our story are important because they help us remember God's faithfulness in the past so we have hope for our future. And so let me just unpack the purpose of an Ebenezer. Some thoughts for you to think through. These are things on your notes if you want to write these down. But here's the first purpose of an Ebenezer. We are fickle. And God is faithful. I love how James captures this idea of God's faithfulness in James 1.17. He says, every good and perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of the heavenly lights who does not change like shifting shadows. And I love that. But do you, do you know who does change like shifting shadows? We do, Right? And so I need some anchors in my life that will help me weather the storms when they come, and they are coming. Because without those anchors, it's too easy to get lost in the storm, to lose sight of my faith, to lose hope. And an Ebenezer is an anchor that reminds us of our hope. The storm is temporary. God is faithful always. Here's another purpose of an Ebenezer. Yesterday's help fuels tomorrow's hope. Does anyone else find that the way you experience reality is that you have a yesterday and you have a tomorrow, but you live today? Am I the only one who experiences the space-time continuum in that flow? (laughs) And you know what's amazing? It's how easy I forget yesterday and lose hope for tomorrow because all I see is today. And what I need in my story is that reminder of God, there you were at work. And so I know you're going to be with me today. So I have hope for what's to come. Because I've had some dark moments in my life. How about you? Anyone else here have some dark moments? Yeah. Like I remember the time when I poured my heart out to the girl. And she said, I think of you like a brother. (laughs) And we weren't living in Arkansas, so I knew there was no hope. Sorry if any of you are. (laughs) Stereotypes exist for a reason, I'm just saying. Um, Or the time we were living our dream in San Diego, serving at a church we loved, thinking we were going to do life there till the very end. And my last year there was my darkest year because I got a new boss that just didn't jive with me. And he sat me down one day and said, you don't have a future here. And I didn't know what that meant because I knew I was disrupting Christy's life, not just my life, because that was her home. Or that time when we're in the emergency room and I'm looking in the eyes of my pregnant wife and the doctor says, we can't find the heartbeat. Or in the darkest moments of my time in Canada, when it makes no sense and it's so challenging and we haven't seen God turn the corner yet in the story and it's the deepest of winters and I'm literally weeping in my basement, praying to God my young kids don't hear because in that moment I feel like God has abandoned us. And yet every time I have seen God's faithfulness in every moment, Because that broken heart led me on a journey where I got to meet Christy. And the no at a dream place in 
San Diego led us on a two-year journey that allowed us to join Michael in the early stages of Rocky Peak and be a part of this family for the first time. And that broken heart in the loss of a child found healing in the embrace of two beautiful daughters. And the darkness of that basement moment became a moment where God would meet me and strengthen me and empower me and help me grow. That the pain is part of the adventure. Don't give up because I have something epic for you. And so as you're in the wrestle, how do you keep score? Because somewhere in the journey in the wrestle, God was challenging me with how I was keeping score. And somewhere in the moments of those dark years, God would say this idea in my mind, Joel, you're keeping score wrong. Stop counting how many times you have fallen down and start counting how many times I have picked you up. Greater things to count because he is a God who is good. I love how Jeremiah, we believe Jeremiah wrote the book of Lamentations. Jeremiah was a prophet who had a very tough calling on his life. We call him the weeping prophet. And I love what he writes about this idea of hope because of who God is in the story. In Lamentations 3, 19 through 26, he writes these words. I remember my affliction and my wandering, the bitterness and the gall. I well remember them, and my soul is downcast within me. Yet this I call to mind, and therefore I have hope. Because of the, great, the Lord's great love, we are not consumed. For his compassions never fail. They are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. I say to myself, the Lord is my portion, therefore I will wait for him. And the Lord is good to those whose hope is in him. To the one who seeks him, it is good to wait quietly for the salvation of the Lord. And so here's my question. Our last time together in this year, as we look to the coming year, what do you need to remember as you head into tomorrow? What Ebenezer's do you need to build? I remember someone asked me this question once. We're just kind of having this spiritual conversation with each other. And they said, like, how, how do you keep going when you don't know what's coming? And I reflected on the question. And I just had to go deep into my own story to f- figure out how I would respond. And, and the best I could come up with was, you know, like in those moments, you just kind of have to bring out the logbook and go back in the story and say, oh, there you were, God. Oh, there you met me. Oh, you got me through that. How do I keep going when I don't know what's to come? I look back and say, thus far, God has helped me. So I believe he will do it again and again and again. And so in this moment, we just want to create space for you to just reflect as we come to the end of this year. As the worship team sings this song over you, maybe let the words just shape a prayer in your heart, but just invite God to come into this moment and remind you of what you need to remember as you get ready to wake up in a new year tomorrow. And if you put something on your heart, I would just encourage you to write it down and then somehow create that Ebenezer so you can walk with that in the coming And so let him meet you in this moment. Invite him to whisper something inside of his goodness and his faithfulness to you. There's something not only beautiful about the faith we profess, there's something powerful about that faith. Its power is that it's not determined by today, but by what God has already done. 2,000 years ago, Jesus came to rescue and redeem us. He went to the cross, suffering our death, and he overcame on the tomb. He came out of that tomb. It's empty. Our faith rests on an historical facts. Nothing today can change that. And so our hope is secure because that is a God who does great things. And so I don't know what's coming in 2024, but I don't really care. 
I don't care who's sitting in the Oval Office next year. I don't care what happens with the economy next year. I don't care what trials and troubles come because he's already overcome. And our hope is in a king who rose from the dead, who's put his power of his spirit in us. That is our hope. Our hope is in the one whom Paul says, who is able to do immeasurably more than all we ask or imagine according to his power that is at work within us. To him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations forever and ever. Amen. And so let's end this year giving him our declaration of praise. That you are a God who does great things. You are not done with our story. 24, bring it on. Because we're walking in with the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords. <laughs>